I mean, come on. Right? Let's go. Um, yeah, I'm a little off the leash tonight, so no table, no. Uh, I, I don't know if you caught in the bridge of that song this, uh, these lines. I won't bow to idols. I'll stand strong and worship you. And if it puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice because you're there too. That, that's a reference uh, to Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told they have to bow down to this idol and they won't do it. And they're thrown in the fiery furnace. Remember this? And they don't burn up. That's typically what we think of when we think about idol worship, right? Some uh, pagan ancient civilization bowing down to like a stone or bronze or wood statue and worshiping it. But that's not the only category for idol. The reformer John Calvin in his famous work, Institutes of the Christian Religion, uh, wrote this. He said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And what he meant by that is our own hearts are constantly coming up with new false gods to worship. And as this evening, as we continue in 1 Corinthians, we'll be in chapter 10, and we're going to see as clear a command as you're ever going to find in the New Testament about this issue of idolatry. It's found in verse 14 of chapter 10, and it simply, Paul says this, Beloved, flee idolatry. Flee idolatry. And a lot of us, because we're Americans, we think, well, that's certainly uh, obsolete. Right? We, we don't have to worry about that because we don't make metal idols. We're not, we're not going down to idols or us, right, and buying our little metal statues uh, to bow down to. Uh, that whole process is alien and primitive, and, and we're educated. Right? We're beyond that. Um, and we think maybe we're exempt from this command, but uh, I want to say to you, Paul's going to show us that's not true tonight. And my prayer is that God would open the eyes of our hearts, all of us, to show us where the idols are in our life and help us run from the idols and run to Jesus. Idolatry has always been an issue with humans since Genesis chapter 3. In fact, the first two commandments in Exodus 20 deal with that issue. Exodus 20, beginning in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God knew very well that he made us to worship him. He, he, our minds and our hearts are hardwired for worship. And if we don't worship the one true God, we will worship a substitute God. It was just wired for it. And again, our, our idols aren't typically little statues made of metal, stone, bronze, wood. 
But an idol is whatever dominates your, your mind, your thinking, what captivates your imagination, your emotions. If it's not the triune God of the universe, then it's an idol. What you live for, what you can't live without. If you look in the Old Testament again and again, when godly kings and prophets would come up against a pagan nation and there, was, uh, there were altars built for idol worship, God would go on this uh, basically wrecking mission and they would destroy the idols. There's one account of this in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 5. The Philistines have the Ark of the Covenant. They've captured it and they bring it into one of their temples and sit the Ark of the Covenant next to a statue of Dagon. Just to show, well, the God of the Israelites is no different than our God. So the next morning, they get up really early and they come in and, and the statue of Dagon is falling down. It's on his face. And they're like, well, maybe some better hardware, right? So they run down to the Home Depot, get some straps, pull that thing back up, stand it back up next to the Ark of the Covenant. They come back to the, the next morning and it's in pieces. In fact, listen to this. Um, the, the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk was left to him. God had shattered it. God is in the business of destroying idols. He's not going to share his glory with anyone. And so you find this command in verse 14, flee from idolatry. And we need to come face to face with that tonight. Look at it. Verse 14, Paul says, dear friends, flee from idolatry. Let's uh, talk about some context before we get much further here. So, 1 Corinthians, um, Paul has unpacked an idea, or beginning to unpack an idea, and he's going to finish it uh, in chapter 10 of this uh, issue of meat offered to idols. So, 8 through 10 is one uh, consistent idea that Paul is working through. And Paul had come to Corinth. Uh, before the gospel had been preached there, it was a very dark place, pagan place. They had uh, temples set up, uh, and Paul's preaching Christ and Christ crucified, and some of these people are pulled out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the sun, and the church is born in Corinth. And uh, they turned from their idolatry. But there's some issues going on in the Corinthian church where some of them are starting to drift back in. To it. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul addresses this idea by talking to the stronger brothers, saying, look, you can't abuse your freedom. Basically, in chapter 8, what Paul is saying is, love should limit your liberty. Because the stronger brothers, although they had the right to eat the meat, they're causing some people with weaker conscience to stumble. And Paul says, don't do that. Love should limit your liberty. And then in chapter 9... We looked at this last week, that Paul effectively gives himself as an example, right? He says, do what I do as I follow Christ. And, and his example is this, I don't live for myself. I don't use my freedom for me. I use my freedom for the gospel. He says, uh, for example, on money, I could have made money off of you from the gospel. I, that, I deserve that, but I chose not to. I wanted to preach the gospel for free. So there wouldn't be a stumbling block between you and Jesus. And then he says, uh, just in his ministry, 
that his ministry to the Greeks and Jews, he looks at the situation, whatever is best for the people he's trying to share the gospel for or with, he's going to do. When it comes to morally neutral issues, right? Paul's going to do what's necessary. He's not talking about immoral practices. When it comes to food, clothing, mannerisms, Paul says, I'm going to be a Jew to the Jews, a Gentile to the Gentiles. He's not talking, again, about immoral things, but morally neutral things. So he's going to put on uh, uh, the clothes, whatever clothes he has to wear, eat whatever food he's got to eat, so there won't be a stumbling block. He wants to win people to the gospel. In fact, I, I gave you this sentence last week by Warren Wearsby. Basically, you can sum up what Paul's trying to say there with this sentence. You do not have the right to give up your freedom, but you do have the freedom to give up your rights. And then at the end of chapter 9, Paul uh, turns a corner. So if you just remove all the chapter breaks, and you're just reading this thing from 8 through 10 as one narrative, Paul starts talking about himself running a race. And he says, only the people that are disciplined finish the race. And so concerning myself, he says, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. That's interesting. Paul is worried about his own heart. He goes on to say, I don't want you to be ignorant about the history of the Jews. And he goes right into how the Jewish nation as a whole, they were rescued out of bondage and slavery. And they followed the pillar of cloud and they went into the Red Sea and they were baptized. And Paul says into the Red Sea, they drank from the spiritual rock and the rock was Christ. And so you see being played out with Israel, uh, the blessings of the kingdom, which is a foreshadowing of the church. But most of them never make it into the promised land. Their bodies scattered all over the desert. And you go back, look back at 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Paul says, I'm worried about myself. I'm worried about my heart. I'm worried about idolatry. Paul knows the history. And he knows that the combination of meat and sex and false gods have always been a stumbling block for God's people. Look at verse 6 through 11 of chapter 10. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So that first generation that, that saw God do all those miracles, the Ten Commandments, like the Ten Plagues, they saw all of that happen and they're in the wilderness and they turn their back on God. Paul says, don't be idolaters as some of them were. As is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did. And they were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did. And they were killed by the destroying angel. Now these things happened to them as examples. And they were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. And it wasn't just that first generation. We read all the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Elijah. They just rail against idolatry. And here we are in the 21st century. 
and uh, we think we're exempt from it. And we're not worried about it. But Paul was worried about it. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament. But we would even say to him, but Paul, come on, man, you're a holy guy. This is what I think Paul would say to us. Yeah, that may be true. But I know I have to walk past that temple every day. I have to smell that meat cooking. I see those temple prostitutes, and I have to walk by that. And don't you dare think that I'm not aware that the seeds of my own destruction are in my heart. I'm concerned about myself. And Paul writes about it. In Romans 7, he talks about this war within himself. In Galatians, he writes about it as well, that there is a battle going on inside of him where the spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh wars against the spirit. And Paul is saying, I'm beating my body. I'm being disciplined. I won't bow down to idols. And church at Corinth, you shouldn't either. And church at Watkinsville, neither should you. Look at what he says in verse 12. If you think you're standing firm, you better take heed unless you fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. This is going on all over the world. Satan has one menu. And it's all he's ever had since the beginning of time. It's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, uh, pride of life. Same menu. Satan is enticing all of us with the same thing. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. But God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way of escape so you can stand up under it. So that's the context that this command is coming into. Well, let's look at the command. Verse 14, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Every time you see the word therefore in the Bible, you should ask yourself, what's it there for? What Paul is saying is in light of everything I've just said to you, flee idolatry. He, he's very logical. He builds his arguments and he's, he says, look, my dear friends, beloved, he, he loves these people. And like he, they look at him as a father and like any good dad who sees his kid about to run into traffic and danger and ultimate death, Paul warns them. And he says, run. Run from idolatry because it will destroy you. And it fits with what he just said uh, about temptation. God will provide a way. He's faithful. He's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. He will make a way out. And sometimes the way out is run. Get out, the, get out of the door. Get away from it. So what, what is idolatry? The, the primary uh, form of idolatry Paul is talking about here is that organized system of pagan religion where they had a temple set up and they had a shrine and they had offerings when the, and the meat's being cooked, much like what the Levitical priests are doing in the Old Testament. And um, if they had extra meat, that'd be sold in the market and 
Paul talks about that later in this chapter. And, and it has all the sights, sounds, and smells basically of a carnival, right? And the Corinthian Christians have to walk by that place on the way to work, on the way home. They see those temple prostitutes. They may know some of the temple prostitutes. This isn't a very old church. These people had just been pulled out of this. And Paul says, you see that? Flee that. To this organized system of pagan religion. But idolatry is much bigger than that. One writer gives this definition. It is worshiping anything other than the true God in the true way. Now that's a pretty good definition. Worshiping anything other than the true God in the true way. My favorite definition is found in Romans 1, 25. Paul says this, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things more than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. So there it is. To worship and serve a created thing, a creature more than the Creator. That's idolatry. Any created thing that seizes our heart our mind, our emotions, is an idol. You, you find another clue in Colossians chapter 3, and in Galatians, Paul says this. He says, greed is idolatry. The easiest way to think about greed is like money, right? So if, if you're a, a, a businessman, you own a company or something, and all you can think about is the bottom line and how much money you make. Paul says that's idolatry. It's what sees your heart, and it's what you run after. It's what you think's ultimately going to satisfy you. But so is someone who is addicted to internet porn. That person is an idolater. Or any hobby. Netflix. You may, your idol may be another person. Your idol may be a thing somewhere out in the future. It may be a relationship. You may be thinking, man, if I can just get a wife, or if I can just get a husband, or if I can just get that job, then I'll be happy. Well, you know what Paul calls that? Idolatry. Let me give you an easy picture. I know, I'm meddling now, right? Just bear with me for a second. If you don't think this will expose some idols, do this sometime this week. Go up to someone and say, hey, can I borrow your phone? What will they do? They'll go, where's your phone? Right? And they'll want to know, what are you going to do with it? Right? And let's just say on the off chance they hand you the phone, right? They hand you the phone and then do this. Just start walking away. You laugh, because what are they going to do? Hey, hey, where are you going? Where, you, where are you going? Or, how many of you have done this? You left it somewhere, right? Just left it. That's how much I care about mine, by the way. <laughs> you leave it somewhere, and like the whole day, you're like this. Oh, my God. My phone. Where is my phone? I hope nobody's trying to call me. I wonder if anybody's looked at my Instagram post today. 
you laugh, but you know, right? You have this thing in the back of your mind. I can't live without it. Anytime you encroach on I can't live without, and if that's not God, then it may be an idol. If you can't say amen, say ouch. All, all kidding aside, though, the, the, the I can't live without is a pretty good indicator. It may not be your phone. I can't live without Georgia winning a national championship. Like you literally, your emotions are so tied to it, you can't function after they lose. That's an idol. So there are two categories, creator, created. That's how we separate things in the universe. Creator, Father, Son, Spirit, one God, everything else, created. Anything in the created category that you elevate to a God level, idol. And Paul says, when that pops up, you need to run. Why do you need to run from it? I hope you all don't mind staying late. i got tons of stuff here. Reason number one from the text, Christian worship is intimate sharing with Christ. That's the number one reason you should run from idols. Look at verse 15. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. First of all, Paul, everything with Paul starts with the mind. However you think, that's going to change your behavior. right? So he's saying, look, you're sensible people. Judge for yourselves. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ because there is one loaf we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one loaf he's talking here about Christian worship specifically the Lord's Supper and what Paul is saying is this that there is a a mystical union with Jesus when we partake of communion. You, 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 may, you may not think about that much. But, but worship is a spiritual union with a deity. There's a fellowship shared with with. An intimacy shared with Jesus when we come to the table and take the, the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus. It's not just some empty ritual. Paul says we are united with Jesus in this intimate act when we do it, when we worship in that way. And, and that's true, worship of the true God or of false gods. Look at the example he gives there of the Lord's Supper. He's going to unpack it more in chapter 11, but what he's saying is behind the actual elements of the bread and the cup, there's a deep spiritual reality. The bread's just bread, the juice is just juice, but there is something so real when we do it. The word he uses there, the Greek word koinonia, it's fellowship. We have fellowship with the blood and the body of Jesus. 
So reason number one, you should flee idolatry is Christian worship is intimate sharing with Christ. Reason number two is this, very similar. Pagan worship is intimate sharing with demons. Look at it, 19. First of all, let's look at verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. Now, the sacrificial system had become obsolete by the time Paul writes this. But what Paul is saying is he's pointing back at Jewish history, and he's saying when the animal sacrifices are altered are offered in a right way, there's a participation of all the people together at the altar. And then he says in 19, Do I mean then that the sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifice of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. Paul is saying, look, in chapter 8, he already said, look, an idol, we know an idol's nothing, right? Zeus and all of those, Apollo, all of those things, they're, they're nothing. That little statue thing, it's just, a, it's just a piece of wood. But behind it is a demonic reality. Paul says, these, these false gods don't exist, but demons are real. And I, here, here's what I think is happening. These demons impersonate these false gods and deceive people into false worship. And it's demonic. Now, it's actually taught in the Old Testament, the Song of Moses. If you go back, uh, it's, it's amazingly prophetic. Um, they've just come out of the promised land, or, or, or come out of Egypt, and they're about to go into the promised land, and Moses gives them a song because songs are easy to remember. And This is what he says, Deuteronomy 32, 15. Israel made God jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. That's Deuteronomy 32. That's before they ever get into the promised land. Well, you know what happens? They do exactly that. This, Paul's teaching here effectively is that all false religions in the world are demonic. Let me say that again. Because, we, because look, we live in a world where you've got to be politically correct. Okay, well, I'm not. I would, I'm more concerned about offending God than I am you. Every false religion in the world is demonic. Pick your favorite ism demons. This is what Paul and the, and the authors of Scripture are saying to us. When you hear these, these founders of these religions say things like, well, an angel came to me and gave me these tablets. Well, guess what Paul's going to tell you in 2 Corinthians? Satan can masquerade as an angel of light. It's all demonic. And Paul says, this is what Paul says, you need to stay away from idolatry because pagan worship is sharing with demons. Number three, reason number three. Idolatry provokes the Lord to jealousy. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord, the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Well, that makes sense, right? 
you can't, you can't have a foot in both lanes. You can't be in the middle of the road. I'm from Alabama. We have a saying in Alabama, there's only two things in the middle of the road, yellow stripes and dead animals. Don't be in the middle of the road because you will provoke the Lord to jealousy. And if you go back and read the Old Testament, when that happens, when God gets provoked, it does not end well for those who provoke him. He has a jealous love for his people. He's not going to share you with an idol because he knows it will destroy you. You don't want to take God on. That's what Paul is saying. So flee from idols because it will provoke the Lord to jealousy. So, so what's the application for us, right? It's easy to excuse ourselves, right? Because we're, we're, we're very educated, right? We, we, we have science. We know, for instance, what causes lightning and thunder. So we don't have a temple to Thor down the street, Right? We're, we're more educated than that. Those silly Greeks. Here's the problem with the way we think about that. We also don't think very much about demons or Satan. And we completely discount the spiritual nature of idolatry. And we think, just because I don't have a little statue, I'm good. So back off, Paul. Look at the final verse of uh, 1 John. 1 John, you don't have to turn there, I'll just tell you what it says. 1 John 5.21. So John says, little children, keep yourselves from, guess what? Idols. It's the last thing John wants to tell this church he's writing to. It's an issue so important that almost every New Testament writer warns against idolatry. And yet... We feel like, well, we're, mm, I'm good. That should not be our approach. Our approach should be this, Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Show me if there's an offensive way in me. And here's the reality. If there's an offensive way in you, there's a good chance there's an idol behind it. David Powelson, uh, counselor, writes this. He says, the most basic question which God continually poses to each human heart is this. Has something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken the title to your heart's trust, preoccupations, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? Has something other than Jesus taken the place of that? Tim Keller, I, I believe, has done probably the most thorough work I know, the most helpful work I know on this topic of idolatry. In a book called Counterfeit Gods, I commend that book to you. Keller says this, Why do we ever fail to love or keep prom promises or act unselfishly? The general answer is because we're sinful and weak. But the specific answer, this is so good, there's always something besides Jesus that we feel we must have to be happy. And that is more important to our hearts than God. And that is enslaving the heart through inordinate desires. Keller calls it functional saviors. 
you think there's this deep longing in you, and you think, if I can just have that, if I can just make that team, if I can just make that grade, if I can just get into that grad school, then I'll be happy. And the reality is you won't because it doesn't satisfy. How do you identify the idols? I'm going to give you four ways, and then we're going to close. First thing is this. Look at your imagination. Your religion, Keller says, is what you do with your solitude. What do you think about? What do you, what do you just, you can't get out of your mind. You're constantly thinking about it. Now look, one daydream does not prove an idol, right? But if you're perpetually just thinking about this thing, thinking, man, I, man if I can just do this, if I get... That's a warning that there may be an idol behind it. Number, number two, look at your resources. Not just your money, but your time, your energy, and your money. You. What are you spending you on? If it's, if it's not Christ and the advancement of his kingdom, and there's something else that you're just giving yourself away to, it may be an idol. Third way, what do you do with disappointment? Unanswered prayer. How, how do you react when you don't get what you want in life? If you have a reaction that's unbiblical, there's a good chance that's an idol. And the last one is your emotions. Look at me. What, what, makes, you, what makes you really angry? What makes you just ridiculously happy is there some root idol in there that's controlling your emotions your imagination your resources your disappointments Paul tells us to run from those things so I, I, I want us to take a minute and and just kind of think through that list Paul tells them they need to run from idols, but it's not enough to just run from them. You need to run to something or someone. You need to run to Jesus. Jesus Christ is an idol destroyer. Remember, I, I said that the, in the Old Testament, when they would come, when they would come up against a pagan nation, and they would they would just destroy the idols. Well, when Moses comes down off of Sinai and they're dancing around that golden calf, Moses has some righteous anger. And he melts the calf down, and down into ashes and he sprinkles the ashes in a brook. And he sets the precedent for how godly kings would behave toward idolatry throughout Israel's history. L listen to this. King Asa cut down the idol that his grandmother set up. This is 1 Kings 15. He burned it, took the ashes, and throw them, he throws them into the Kidron brook. King Josiah brought out the wooden image from the house of the Lord. He burned it through the ashes in the brook Kidron outside Jerusalem. King Hezekiah went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it, brought out all the debris, all the idols, burned it through the ashes in the Kidron Brook. And I think it's a picture of 
of God taking the idols away from people and, and removing their guilt. And these kings are remembered for destroying idols from the land, but none of them could purge idolatry from the human heart. But there was a king. This is so crazy. First John, or John chapter 18. As he made his way to Calvary, Jesus crossed over the brook Kidron. To symbolize everything he was doing. Everything he had come to do. He was crushed and ground by the wrath of God on the cross. The idol killer had to suffer death. So you could be set free from whatever it is. Listen to me. I know in your 20s. Listen. I have, it was a long time ago, but I've been there. You, there's something in a lot of your hearts that you're saying, if I can just get that, I'm going to be complete. Hear me. Stop. None of it will satisfy you. Only Jesus can satisfy the deepest longing of the human heart. And so whatever it is you're chasing, the grade, the grad school, the girl, the guy, the inclusion in a club, the scholarship, the team, whatever it is you've got hanging out there that you're thinking, if I get that, I'm going to be complete. That's an idol. And tonight, Jesus wants you to just say to him, only you can satisfy. So we're going to end tonight by, by singing a prayer. If you know it, you can stand and sing as Caleb leads us. If you don't know it, you just sit under it and let God do the work he needs to do. Flee from idolatry. Run from idols and run to Jesus, church. He's the only thing that can satisfy you.